Hello, friends. I am thrilled to share that I'll be recording a live episode of On Being in New York City with poet and MacArthur Genius Fellow Claudia Rankin as part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. Our conversation will take place on November 12th at 7 p.m. at the Kay Playhouse at Hunter College. This is an evening you won't want to miss, so buy tickets now at workitevents.com. That's workit, W-E-R-K-I-T, events.com. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Sally Cohn and Eric Erickson. Buckle your seatbelts. There's a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Abraham Kim, Executive Director of the Maureen and Mike Mansfield Center and a co-sponsor of today's important and timely conversation about the state of American politics, our political discourse, and civility. We are grateful to our friends and the co-organizers of tonight's program, On Being Civil Conversations Project, Montana Public Radio, UM's Project on American Democracy and Citizenship, and the University of Montana Mansfield Center's Ethics and Public Affairs Program. Thank you to all of these partners for the months of hard work to get our three nationally distinguished guests, Krista Tippett, Sally Cohn, and Eric Erickson, to join us here at the University of Montana for this evening's discussion on civil conversation and repairing public discourse. My colleague from Montana Public Radio, Ray Eknes, will introduce our guests in more detail momentarily. But today, I'd like to take a few moments to share with you why today's program is special for the Mansfield Center. On March 16th was Mike Mansfield's 115th birthday. And on March 25th is Maureen's 113th birthday. I'm sure they would be very proud of tonight's program. Senator and Ambassador Mike Mansfield was a man of great accomplishments. However, more than his achievements, those who knew him best remembered Mike for his character and values. He was a man of integrity, courage, humility, and had a deep desire to work together with others who did not necessarily agree with him to get things done. I think you'll agree that we need more leaders like Senator Mike Mansfield in our world today. I'd like to share a short, brief story with you to set the tone for this evening. It's recounted by former Vice President Joe Biden in 2015 about his memory of Mike Mansfield. After four months in the United States Senate as a 30-year-old kid, I was walking through the Senate floor to go to a meeting with Majority Leader Mike Mansfield. And I witnessed another newly elected senator, the extremely conservative Jesse Helms, excoriating Ted Kennedy and Bob Dole for promoting the precursor for the Americans with Disabilities Act. But I had to see the leader, so I kept on walking. 
When I walked into Mansfield's office, I must have looked as angry as I was. He was in his late 70s. And he looked at me and he said, what's bothering you, Joe? I said, that guy, Helms, he has no social redeeming value. He doesn't care. I really mean it. I was angry. He doesn't care about the people in need. He, was a, he has a disregard for the disabled. Majority Leader Mike Mansfield then proceeded to tell me that three years earlier, Jesse and Dot Helms, sitting in their living room in early December before Christmas, reading an ad in the Raleigh Observer, the picture of a young man, 14 years old, with braces on his legs, up to both hips, saying, all I want is someone to love me and adopt me. Mike Mansfield looked at me and he said, and they adopted him, Joe. I felt like a fool. He then went on to say, Joe, it's always appropriate to question another man's judgment, but never appropriate to question his motives because you simply don't know his motives. It fortunately happened early in my career. From that moment on, I tried to look past the caricatures of my colleagues and try to see the whole person. Never once have I questioned another man's or woman's motives. And something started to change. Senator Helms and I continued to have profound political differences. But early on, we both became the most powerful members of the Senate running the Foreign Relations Committee as chairman and ranking members. But something happened. The mutual defensiveness began to dissipate. And as a result, we began to be able to work together in the interests of the country. And as chairman and ranking member, we passed some of the most significant legislation passed in the last 40 years. I hope this Mansfield story highlights the importance of civility and cooperation not only in our communities, but in our country. Thank you again for joining us tonight for, to be a part of this conversation and supporting this legacy of Mike Mansfield and the example that he set for us that is both Montanan and American. Now I'd like to invite Ray Agnes to introduce our guests this evening. Ray. Thanks, uh, Western Montana. It's unbelievable to see how many of you have come tonight. And uh, I am the uh, station manager at Montana Public Radio. I just want to say thanks to a few folks as well. First to Abe and uh, his team at the Mansfield Center. Thank you so much. Thanks to the Project on American Democracy and Citizenship and to the folks here at the University of Montana in the Denison Theater. Uh, thanks to the great team with On Being and the Civil Conversation Project. And thanks to our team at Montana Public Radio, especially for all of the hard work put in by our development team led by Linda Talbot. Thanks, Linda. But most of all, thanks to you for being here tonight and uh, supporting On Being and supporting public radio, specifically Montana Public Radio. So let's get to our uh, program tonight and our very impressive panel. Tonight's guests represent the opposite ends of the political spectrum, yet both have recently written books about how to be our best selves despite divergent views and beliefs. Our first guest is one of the leading progressive voices in America today. Sally Cohn's been a commentator, columnist, and contributor on both CNN and Fox News. 
She was a program fellow at the Ford Foundation, helping manage more than $15 million in annual grants to social, social justice organizations. She's received a joint degree in law and public administration from New York University. She's the author of the book, The Opposite of Hate, and hosts the podcast, State of Resistance. We're so happy to have her join us this evening. Please welcome Sally Cohn. Our next guest has been named one of the most influential, influential conservative voices in America today. Eric Erickson is the host of Atlanta's Evening News on WSB and is editor of The Resurgent. He's also been a contributor to both CNN and Fox News. He studied political science and history at Mercer University and received a law degree from Mercer's Walter F. George School of Law. He's currently working on his PhD in theology and is author of the book, Before You Wake, Life Lessons from a Father to His Children. Please welcome Eric Erickson. And finally, our esteemed host for this evening, Krista Tippett. Krista is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, National Humanities, Humanities Medalist, and New York Times best-selling author. She founded and leads the On Being Project, hosts On Being public radio show and podcast, and curates the Civil Conversations Project. Busy, busy schedule. She grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, attended Brown University, became a journalist and diplomat in Cold War Berlin, and later received a Master's of Divinity from Yale University. Her books include Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living, and Einstein's God, conversations about science and the human spirit. Please welcome our host for this evening, Krista Tippett. so wonderful to be here. We've, we've been in Montana since we've just, we've had a very full schedule. I met some incredible students here yesterday and we've kind of fallen in love and we're already talking about on being Missoula. So. <laughs> and I, and we have, we have been planning this and and, you know, tr just trying to think about the best possible combination of people, the best people to be here for this important discussion, and I'm so happy we're finally, we've finally done it. And I do want to thank um, Dane Scott and Abraham Kim um, of, the, of the Maureen and Mike Mansfield Center, and Michael Marsolik and Ray Eknes and uh, Linda Talbot of Montana Public Radio. And, and uh, I can tell that this is a public radio audience here. <laughs> we love being on Montana Public Radio. We're honored to be on your air. Um, and, you know, so here we are. So oh, I want to say a little bit about uh, process. We, there's my clock. We are going to speak up here for maybe 40 minutes. Um, and then I, uh, in about half an hour, 25, 30 minutes, I'm going to invite you, if you have questions, to write them down and they will be picked up. And if I forget to do that, Lily is going to stand up and jump up and down. 
Um, and then we will um, we'll speak for a few more minutes. And we are taping this for potential broadcast, so we'll speak for a few more minutes. Then we'll have some, we'll hear what's on your mind for a few minutes, and then we will come back up here to the stage and finish out uh, the conversation, the evening. So, you know, when, I, you, when we use the word civility, um, in the language of civility, I always rush to add some unexpected qualifiers. I, I like adventurous and muscular. Because I think like a lot of words that we most, for things that we most need, the words themselves are watered down and overused. And I think that the word civility kind of, it has these connotations of niceness and tameness and politeness and being safe and qualities that are far too mild to, or it feels like too mild to meet this moment. Um, what I love about these two people, Sally Cohn and Eric Erickson, is that one of the things I love about them is that no one would accuse either one of them of not having, holding deep, unwavering convictions and uncompromising values. Um, the National Review said of Sally, she's progressive enough to work for Roger Ailes' network without anyone ever questioning her liberal bona fides. <laughs> um, she's the host of... State of Resistance, the podcast, State of Resistance. Eric is the editor of the blog, The Resurgent. Uh, and one way you talk about that is resistance to the dominant spirit of the age. Um, and, and this is an and and not a but, I think of them both also as bridge people. Um, you know, I think also the language of the center is a little bit problematic right now. And I'm, I'm not sure if there is such a thing as a center. And if there is, if it's very interesting. Um, it's certainly not some kind of, there's not an illusory neutral zone. To me, I, 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 I like to think of the center and I want to expand our imagination about it as the heart, the vast middle and heart of our life together, which extends way beyond the center, way right of center, way left of center, however we're dividing that up in whatever issue we're talking about. Or people of deep conviction um, also have some curiosity alongside their convictions, also have some questions alongside their answers, and want to engage the other side um, in that spirit. And I do believe that, you know, resurgence and resistance here, uh, as embodied in Sally and Eric, they also hold in their bodies and their lives a deep desire to be part of another R word, which is the word repair repairing of our common life and really, I think, recreating what common life can look like in the 21st century. So tonight, I think the large questions we're exploring are, can differing deep convictions and personal integrity be held in a humanizing and creative tension rather than a dehumanizing, destructive tension? Um, and something I love that Van Jones said about you, Eric, uh, one of your unexpected friends. Um, yes is, uh, you know, he said the question is, you know, do you, can you continue seeking wisdom while staying true to your fundamental principles? I think this is one of those robust, adventurous questions that's going to define if we can learn what it means to be civil in a meaningful way. I will say that backstage, we already, you know, found some common ground. They both hate wicker. They have an aversion <laughs> to wicker. So who says you can't find common ground right away? But I'm not really interested in common ground. I'm interested in depth. 
And I hope that we can both discuss some of what's happening in our life together now and also model some different ways to be present to um, the tensions in our public life right now and the possibilities. So I'm interested in the kind of inner spiritual moorings of both of your passion for repair. But I'd like to start getting at that by asking a question that's similar to what I ask um, in the beginning of every one of my conversations, whoever I'm speaking with. Um, I wonder how you would trace that, like this passion that you have for repair now, how you might begin to trace that in the religious or spiritual background of your earliest life, of your childhood. Um, And Eric, you were born in Jackson, Louisiana, but you spent most of your childhood in Dubai. Mm Uh, where your father worked, and he, your father was working offshore for long stretches of time. So you had a very unusual childhood for a Southerner, which right. is how people know you now. Um, so, uh, yeah, so how would you start to look at that, this, whatever the spiritual, religious background of your childhood was, and where there are uh, roots now of some of the things that are mo- mo- mobilizing you? You know, my very earliest memory of, of faith or religion was my grandmother had, you know, the golden books. The, they published a version of the Bible which had just some beautiful pictures in it. And my very first childhood memory is actually my grandmother reading to me uh, Daniel in the Lion's Den. Uh, and I, I still remember the picture. In fact, I now have that same chair and have read that out of that same golden book Bible, that same story to my kids. And I have told them as my grandmother told me, that sometimes the lions were always your adversaries, and sometimes the lions used to be your friends. And that always stuck with me, that lesson. Uh, And so then growing up overseas in Dubai, as an American in Dubai in the 1980s, you had to leave every three months. Um, You had to go for a week at a time to get your visa renewed, so I've still been to more countries than states over a 10-year period, every six months or three months or however it was, um, leaving to go get my visa renewed. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Asia and Africa and, and just seeing the interconnectedness of people and realizing now that I have kids in the age of the Internet that we as a society have lost that interconnectedness. I started going to seminary several years ago for working on my master's and transitioning into a Ph.D. program and realizing that I had to do a better job of conforming my politics to my faith. And in doing so, it's been real eye-opening to see the number of my friends and uh, former friends after the last couple of years working real hard to conform their faith to their politics. And Mm -hmm. I didn't want my children to go down that road. Particularly my wife, I in particular, had a very near-death experience two years ago and wanted to make sure that my kids didn't make some of the mistakes I made. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Sally, you were born in Allentown, Pennsylvania, is that right? It is. Okay. Did you want me to sing the Billy Joel song now or later? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's I'll interesting because you. You, you describe yourself as growing up upper middle class, but in, in what, we, what we call the Rust Belt, which is, I just want to put out there, one of the terrible, like, why do we think it's okay to describe places people come from and love with language like the Rust Belt, mm. um, but you grew up in the you grew up upper middle class in the Rust Belt, and and you and you've said that one of the things your parents gave you was a gift of understanding that everybody wasn't as well off as you were. Yes. Yeah. But how how would you start to talk about the roots of what mobilizes you now with 
this, whatever you would, however you describe the spiritual or religious background of your childhood there. So it took me a while, I think, to figure out that there is a difference between spirituality and religion, and was really glad when I figured that out. Um, I think I grew up very religiously conflicted. Uh-huh. I mean, I should say I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm culturally very Jewish. I worry all the time. <laughs> I'm worrying about all of you right now. <laughs> so I got that locked in. But um, I had parents who were very conflicted about institutional religion and, um, and, and sort of kept seeing in my childhood and, and through young adulthood the tensions between, on the one hand, the incredible history of, uh, you know, whether it was during the civil rights movement uh, and including the, the black church and the civil rights movement, but also white Jews and their role, uh, in constructive roles in the civil rights movement on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, some of the, uh, you know, as I, as I, when I realized I was gay in high school and my parents could not have been more wonderful and supportive, but saw that in the external world, a lot of the hostility to being gay came from institutionalized religions, from Judaism as well as Christianity and and others. And I couldn't reconcile that tension. I'm not sure that I can still. Um, I feel like it's a choice every person of faith and every institution has to make. On the other hand, um, I think I came to what I would describe now as a spiritual path of um, reluctantly, because as a East Coast Jew, I don't usually talk in those words, but... um, (laughs) <laughs> but to, to find the humanity in others that, for whatever reason, because of politics, because of media, because of our coarse culture, I felt had been obscured from me and certainly obscured from me in, in others, uh, the so-called others. Yeah. And, and I feel like that is, to me, that is a certain spiritual challenge or journey that I'm still, I think, working on. Mm. I'd like to say there's more common ground here that I'm discovering because my personal family motto is why pray when we can worry. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, worry. I like that. Yes. There you go. This We're is... going to, after this, going to go get some matching tattoos. Yeah. We'll... <laughs> See y'all later. <laughs> so, you know, as, as I uh, moved through 2016, um, what started being clear to me kind of midway through that year is whoever won, um, the deep work that we were going to have to do as a society was about, was human work, about repairing, like stitching relationship across that rupture that had suddenly become on, you know, we couldn't no longer not see it. And that somehow that was going to involve each and every one of us, wherever we were on the political or social spectrum, taking some kind of stock in terms of how we um, got to this place and our, our, our place in it. And I feel like each of you has, has been pretty publicly doing that kind of, undertaking that kind of reckoning, uh, modeling that. And, um, you know, Sally, you, uh, in this new book you have, which is just coming out in April, um, The Opposite of Hate, you know, you, I mean, you, as we say, you're a liberal. Like, your credentials are firm. Um, Thank you. And I don't think you... I, 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 
I've worked really hard. Uh, yeah, okay. On that, All right, so you thank you. You demonstrated that. Yeah. But you tell a story that I found very, you know, and you, you talk about how you, you grew up as a community organizer, and you, know, you said this, you know, right wingers were my enemies and I hated them. And you even grew up in a kind of the, a, with a philosophy of community organizing that formed a lot of people that your political enemies were devils. Um, and you, you've worked to get to not be that way, but in this election, that all resurfaced for you. Um, you tell this story, and I think also something that you both have in common is you're both parents. You're right in the thick of parenting, and that's influencing how this reckoning you're doing. And you, talk, you tell a story of being in your lovely leafy neighborhood block party in Brooklyn uh, in, t in the summer of 2016, and, and there was a pinata of Donald Trump's head. And you you complained uncivilly <laughs> but you also you also told your daughter I mean it is Brooklyn so you know you got to <laughs> okay. you got to use certain language to be heard you know but right but you told your daughter that she couldn't go because that was not right um one of the things that's interesting to me, so in this, in this book um, that I wrote, one of the things I did was I talked to uh, former terrorists and former neo-Nazis and people who had left extraordinary lives and mindsets of hate behind. And how one of the through lines for so many of them, that transition, that inflection point was parenthood. And it's mm -hmm. interesting in a way because the opposite is also the case as well, in a way, right? If you look, for instance, at white supremacist doctrine, the core of white supremacist doctrine is, quote unquote, securing the future for our children, for white yeah. children. Well, there's nothing that, get, makes, that can make us more primal and fierce than the thought that we have to protect our children. Right, but yeah. it also is a way, it, it's interesting, I'm, I'm, I'm struck it's by interesting that, it's that it can be both, that yeah. it can be either this gateway to, I have to do what's right for my kid and yeah. my kid only and yeah. all of the tribalism and otherizing and, and particularly in our American context around race and class, et cetera, that that entails, or it can be a lens to critique our own non-generosity, our own insularity, mm -hmm. our own cruelty. When you hear certain things coming out of your children's mouth and say, why do I think it's wrong for my daughter to say she hates Trump, well, then it's wrong for me to do it too. Mm -hmm. and, and we tried very hard, my partner and I tried very hard during the election to say, look, you can not like what he stands for, mm -hmm. uh, but you don't hate him. And one of my, I think uh, you'll enjoy this story, Eric, one of my favorite moments during the election was uh, this package arrived at home and it was a mermaid Snuggie, which for those who aren't familiar, um, is uh, like a, a giant sleeping bag blanket, but with like a mermaid tail at the end. Anyway, it just came in a package. My daughter saw her name was on it and opened it. And I come home and she is clinging this thing for life. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened <laughs> right. in her little eight-year-old right. life. It's amazing. And uh, I, I go into the other room. My partner's like, who sent her that in the mail? Like, why are we getting mermaid snuggies at home? And I said, oh, it's my friend Scotty Nell Hughes. She's Someone I'm on, I'm on CNN with, I'm on air with, she's the Trump supporter I'm often on air with. And my daughter had obviously overheard this and comes into the room holding the mermaid Snuggie <laughs> at arm's length like it's now poison. Yeah. 
And I said, honey, she's a Trump supporter and she's a good person. Mm -hmm. And those two things are true. And there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, do, or n do not nice things who are Hillary supporters. Like it's not, the, the two don't have to be, don't have to go together. And what's amazing is I've heard her repeat that. Mm. I've heard her mm. say, mm. Trump supporters are good people too. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 if we can figure out how to get through this moment of what I think is really important and profound ideological wrestling over what does justice look like? Yeah. What does equality look like? How do we get there? And at the same time, hold in our hearts the aspiration of that idea, which is if you believe in equality and justice, then treat everyone with equality and justice while arguing about the paths and policies to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've said uh, the first step, the first step is starting to recognize the hate inside ourselves. We need to catch ourselves and our, our hateful th thoughts in all their forms in all of us. So Eric, you, um, I mean, you have had a pretty exciting early century. Uh, <laughs> you became the editor-in-chief editor of redstate.com. You were involved in the Tea Party. You became a syndicated newspaper columnist, a drive-time, very popular drive-time host in Atlanta. Um, occasionally guest hosting Rush Limbaugh's syndicated radio show. In 2016, there was also, and, there, and, and in 2016, you were a conservative who was not supporting the Republican <laughs> nominee, but your year was a lot more eventful yes. than that. Yeah, so I, as all bad stories begin, I went to a CrossFit box <laughs> in 2015. Um, I, traveling the country in the debates, needing to get back in shape, was just out of breath all the time. And it just got worse. And, you know, my dad told me everything went downhill at 40. And I had hit 40 and thought, everything is falling apart. Just couldn't do CrossFit, couldn't keep up. Um, it got worse. Thought it was allergies. Uh, next thing I know, uh, I am being rushed into an ICU after getting a CT. Literally, I got a CT scan. And, you know, the techs aren't supposed to tell you anything. And the guy comes in, ghost white, and says, do I strap him down? And I just fell out laughing and started to sit up, and he pushes his chest. No, you can't get up. You should be dead. I had 20-some-odd blood clots in my lungs. Uh, they had been accumulating. And literally, my wife couldn't be there. She had to pick up the kids. So we weren't expecting anything. It was allergies. And while I'm in the CT scan, of course, you can't get your cell phone working. And I, I get out of range. And my phone just lights up. It's my wife. Uh, the Mayo Clinic had called. She had these random spots in her lungs that had them for years. And they called and said she needed to come in. Uh, she, they were starting to see people with her condition develop lung cancer. Uh, while I was going in the CT machine, this happened uh, with my lungs. So I go in an ICU unit. I'm in ICU for a week. I've never been in the hospital in my life. And I snore. I have the people around me. Um, was terrible for them. And I, it was just, it, it was awful. Uh, I was there for a week. I had a ruptured vein. They put uh, stroke victim drugs in me. So I had a bruise literally from this tip to here. Uh, my kids came in and freaked out. They they're still haven't gotten over it. Yeah. So all this happens. My wife has a very rare form of genetic uh, lung cancer. There is no cure. Uh, we have all these, these things happen. And I had written that I wouldn't support the president. And it was not a month after I got out of the hospital that we had three gentlemen show up on our front porch 
to tell me that I should be supporting the president or because I'm a conservative and that if I wasn't going to, they were going to make sure that my life was ruined. Uh, we had to have armed guards at the house for three months. My kids were chased through the grocery store by a man who wanted them to know that I was destroying the country uh, by not supporting Donald Trump. They came home from school multiple times crying that either someone's parent hated me or the kids uh, thought I was gonna get shot. My personal favorite though is my wife uh, unveiling in the Bible study that she's in that she's been diagnosed with this incurable form of lung cancer. And a woman comes up to her afterwards and wants her to know that she's praying for her, but boy, she really wants to slap me across the face for not supporting the president. Someone else wanted to punch me. Uh, we had to give up going to church for about four months because I literally couldn't go from Sunday school to the sanctuary without someone wanting to yell at me for not supporting him. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's, it's the, the regressive Viking in me or the Cajun, but I just, when people keep telling me to, to do X, I tend to do Y. And the more people demanded that I support him, the less I could. And it was really more, I couldn't support him because he didn't reflect my values and I didn't think he reflected the values of the people I saw who were aggressively supporting him. Mm -hmm. And right. I just felt like somebody needed to say, this is madness. But you also then set out to write this book, um, which it came out at the end of last year, at Lytton of 2017, When I Wake. It's my closet cookbook. There are lots of recipes. There, there is a cookbook. Yeah, there are recipes. Right. It's fascinating. Um, <laughs> but you have to read a little while to get to the cookbook. Um, but it's less life lessons um, from a father to his children, because what you also do in that book, and I, I do want to say that you also have said, alongside your very fierce, as you say, um, confrontation with that presidential candidacy and candidate, um, you also have are, are on record saying that if somebody pointed a bullet at your head and said you have to either vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, you would have to choose the bullet. Yes. So like that's also who you are. Okay. Yes. I need to be a provide relief. context in this yes. room. Um, Good context. <laughs> and but in that room, in this book, you also say to your, you start looking at at I do think you know this this reckoning like what how. What have I done in these last years that is on record, that is on the internet, that my kids are going to read one day, and I want them to understand me in a greater fullness? And to me, that's just, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I make my living on the internet. I'm very blessed. I've had a TV and a radio studio in my house uh, for years, thanks to the internet. Um, I initially got started as a writer on the internet because I hated being a lawyer. All lawyers want to be writers, I think, and I became one. And John Grisham succeeds. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And I've increasingly become mindful of two things about the internet. One is that all of us, myself included, um, we, we can lose ourselves on the internet and become our worst selves. And then others want to define us by the worst thing we've done on the internet. Uh, even if it was a decade ago, and, and probably the worst thing I've ever done on the, on the internet was a decade ago. People still bring it up that you have no credibility because of this thing you did 10 years ago. And if none of us are allowed to move beyond the worst thing we've done, mm -hmm. there's no incentive for any of us to become yeah. a better person. Uh, and I wanted to make sure my kids understood that. The other thing, and I think this is the most deeply disturbing thing about the internet no one talks about and should, is it has allowed every single person in this room and all of us up here to ignore our physical, actual next door neighbor and become friends with the next door neighbor on Facebook. 
Uh, and as a result, pretty soon everybody in our neighborhood looks and thinks like us. And we no longer actually know the problems in our local community. And I think unless we as a society get back to localism, uh, that we, we're going to really lose what we've had as a country. I, I tell my kids all the time, and I mentioned this in the book, that it, it, Jeremiah 29, 7 says, Seek the welfare of the city in which you are in exile, for there you will find your salvation. And I really do believe that means your local community, uh, all politics is local. If you don't know about the homeless man under the bridge or that your next-door neighbor is sick and needs food, uh, you're not being a good member of the American community. And my kids need to understand that they need to know their next-door neighbor, not just their people on the Internet. Um, I, I kind of think that this phenomenon of trolls is like a... Well, it's, it's made possible by the internet. On the other hand, it's just, it's the dark side of the human condition with a new canvas that being- Anonymity. And, and, and being disembodied. Mm -hmm. um, one of the interesting things you did, you've done is you actually, well, you said, you said, I think you said, I don't want to brag, but somebody at Twitter told you that you had some of the worst trolls on the internet. I mean, I'm just like, saying. That's quite know. a, yeah. Um, <laughs> But you actually called a bunch of them up. I did. And, you know, it, it, what Eric is talking about, this, like, what happens when you just are with people in the flesh, they were just people. They were, I mean, then you had a human encounter with them, which was in such, for the most part, stark contrast. There were so many interesting things um, about my trolls. Uh, <laughs> Did they live I, under bridges? I didn't actually mean that as a laugh line, but okay. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, and, you know, it is interesting. You make the joke about do they live under bridges, but it's even the word we choose, trolls, right? They're these yeah. little, you know, yeah. nebbishy creatures who live under yeah. bridges and throw rocks. And yeah. it's a very dehum it's dehumanizing language. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, I'll, I'll say, I guess, that there were two things that I took away the most, in addition to all the interesting anecdotes like the troll who confessed the crush on me, which I have to say I did not see coming at wow. all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not how I express a crush, but whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to each their own. And, and it was actually that he was really upset. He got upset and mean to you yeah. because he found out you were gay, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> and he still keeps like emailing me for, see if I wanna go to Maryland for bagels. Um, <laughs> No. Yeah. Anyway, but like nice no, you know, because anyway, um, there were two things that really struck me the most. One was, um, you know, no one thinks they're mean. No one thinks they're mean. And again, it goes back to, uh, it's not just trolls, talking to neo-Nazis and talking to terrorists, people think their motivation is fundamentally good. By and large. And these trolls didn't think they were doing something mean. In fact, they often thought I was the one who was mean or uncivil or, or cruel or unkind. Um, and, and in fact, when I heard some of their stories, I was so struck that here I am mildly irritated by the annoyance of being called things I can't repeat on public radio yeah. online. Um, and they're going through real hardships in their lives. And I think it's unfortunate in a number of ways that this is one of the things they choose to do with their time, but still, um, no one thinks they're mean. No one thinks they're hateful. 
No one wants to be hateful. Okay, the so what do we do with oh, that? What do we do about that? Because because we are, we're, we're well, full of meanness. Well, the other thing I was going to say, and this is, I think, part of it is, yeah. is that they also didn't think anyone was paying attention to their tweets, which of right. course is like, why right. are you tweeting them? But still, they were like, I didn't think anyone was reading them. I mean, they are, and right. we've forgotten. It's, or it's that interesting. they could hurt you, that they right. could make you feel the way you were feeling. Right, and, and the felt. minute that they had the opportunity, a lot of them apologized, and I was yeah. like, thanks, but why'd you then do it, right? And this sort of, it has something to do with a lack of accountability. It also has to do with this way that the internet comes to exist within our own heads. Hmm. And so, I mean, there are studies that when people have to, uh, you know, are sort of challenged to engage online in a computer scenario, but where they can see the eyes, see a video of the eyes of the person that they're writing to, we behave more kindly. Mm -hmm. So there's this dehumanization of technology that then f allows us to fuel the dehumanization that you're exactly right, Krista, didn't begin with technology, but, but they, they mm -hmm. end up sort of nurturing and feeding each it. other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, part of what I think we do is start to understand that we all have a problem, right? And I, look, I don't, I don't care who does it worse. I happen to have an opinion on the matter about, uh, I mean, I actually, I'll be honest, what I really think, and I'm curious if you agree with this, Eric, is I, I've come to think that, uh, that the left, by and large, uh, is nicer to humanity in general, but not people in specific, and conservatives are nicer to people in specific, but not humanity in general. That's actually something conservatives say regularly. Okay, cool. Yes. So that's really interesting, right? And yeah. and if we could somehow figure out a way to say, okay, you know what? Yeah. Like, let's try to yeah. do both. Um, yeah. But also from I think that point of recognizing it that at least at the very beginning, nobody, we all have a habit of dehumanizing and demeaning the other, mm -hmm. and we all think we're justified in doing it because of them. Right. I've heard so many people in this election. I've been at dinner parties. So many people, my liberal friends, right. who say. Oh, these Trump supporters, man, yeah. they're so racist and they're so yeah. Islamophobic and I hate them. Because yeah. <laughs> they're so hateful, I hate them. Yeah. I mean, I... Yeah. And also, by the way, we're the side that says like, hey, you know, the Republican Party and Trump and, and you know, sort of the history of conservatives, not only conservatives, but largely conservatives in American politics since the, you know, 60s and 70s and 80s of dog whistle politics and fueling uh, you know, race baiting and racial animus and, and fear. And we say, hey, look, they did that. That's a system. And we blame the people for then expressing these views as though not it's been done to them, but it's inherent in them, that that's who they are as people. How can we say those two things at the same time? Mm -hmm. So I do think we have to have some faith in people's intention to be good. And assume, I try very hard, and this is where I think it is a spiritual quest, I try very hard to assume, I try very hard to assume that you like me, in spite of some of the, but in spite of some of the things I know you've read and, 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 or, and, and written and said about gay people, I still don't assume you mean me ill will. I don't. I can, and, that, and that, the rest of that is sort of in the tension, but it's also, I, I, I want to believe the best in people. Mm. And it seems to me that's the gift I have to give others if I want them to believe the best in me. You, you have actually called that a daily spiritual practice. I yes. think that's this, you know, uh, I mean, Eric, I feel like you also have been caught in one of the related dynamics to all of this, 
which is that uh, the culture we've created, the dynamic is that we also really want to freeze people in the worst thing they ever said. Mm-hmm. And then associate everybody, everybody who might be remotely like them or who voted like them. So, but in a, in a very particular instance, so you said something. I mean, you've said a lot of I've things. Said a you're, lot of you're, things. A pundit. Yes. you're a pundit. But a few years ago, you, you made a comment which you later really have said many times in many places, I regret. Mm-hmm. You said something in coarse language about a Supreme Court justice. Yes. And um, wrote a whole chapter in the book about that one. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And um, um, and the word goat was in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yes. Yes. yes and I've had to talk to my 12 year old about this. OK. Yes. <laughs> and 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 when we announced on Twitter that we were doing this interview and I said how excited I was to talk to both mm-hmm. of you, you know, and I hadn't actually picked up on hadn't followed this mm-hmm. saga yet. But <laughs> somebody came through and Just said, mention me online. Ask, You'll be amazed. Ask Eric Erickson what. Uh, you know, saying this has to do with repairing civil discourse. And it's if we are to not just expect, see, see, desire to see the best in each other and desire to draw forth the best in each other, right? To, mm-hmm. to create circumstances and relationships that, that maybe we, we all become, bring more of our better selves into yes. the public space. Yeah. One thing we're going to have to do is uh, let people apologize, you know, accept apologies, but also create spaces. And I don't think, you know, the Beltway is this space, but it's not the only space in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Is create spaces where it's actually reasonable to invite people to say they're sorry. Mm -hmm. You know, a a good example of this is uh, Kathy Griffiths and uh, her Donald Trump head. And when she did that, there was a lot of conservative outrage of the picture she posed purportedly with the decapitated president. She came out and apologized for that afterwards. I actually wrote um, Jeff Zucker at CNN and told him I hoped that they did not part ways with her because I had seen online a real growing positioning on both sides that apologies no longer matter. And if apologies no longer matter, why bother apologizing? And and there was a coarsening. And did I agree with what she did? Vehemently, no. Uh, But she apologized. Move on. Is there a consequence when you do bad things? Yes, there is. I mean, when my kids say they're sorry, they can still get in trouble for things. Um, But I I thought CNN had a real opportunity there that, that they didn't take to really show that apologies should matter. And I I think both sides now are are very bad about even letting their own apologize within the tribe. Um, If you cross the tribe, uh, I I have crossed the tribe, and and there can be no apology. If we're defining ourselves by our worst things, you know, it goes to a point Sally made earlier that uh, we sometimes, and, and when I did that, it was, I think, 2009, and it was just, I didn't know anybody, but a, a couple dozen people on Twitter at the time, and it was just friends, and it, it wasn't my remark, it was someone else's, and we were laughing about it, and I took ownership of it, though, and I've had to apologize for it nearly every day since, um, but the number of people who still bring it up because they think I need to be defined by that, yeah. mm-hmm. there's also just, a, I, I wrote a piece this morning that, that's gotten me a lot of hate mail from people on the left saying, um, and the basic point was that people on the left who say Donald Trump is, is a dictator you'd be okay with one um, for a litany of reasons. And I've gotten a lot of people, you wouldn't say this about the right. 
actually, I wrote this several weeks ago about people on the right suddenly being okay with dictatorship as long as it goes their way. Hmm. And the common themes are one, people don't know the record, so they assume if I'm saying this today, I've never said the other. But two, the fact that both sides really are at a disturbing point in this country where as long as their side is winning, they don't care. Uh, and I think that is only possible again, and I hate to sound like a broken record on this, but it really is where my heart is right now, that it only matters when we're oblivious to the people on our city block, to the homeless people in our community. When it's just national politics, when Washington is the be all end all of everything, everything's abstract because none of us are in Washington. Do you want to say something? Hey, I, hang on, I have to okay, do my I, duty. Oh yes. We're past 30 minutes. Lily, you've not been jumping up and down. <laughs> um, if you have a question, which I'm sure many people do, um, let's, will somebody, will these be collected? So we'll just, we'll keep talking for a couple minutes. Okay. Oh, I mean, as tempted as I am to respond to that particular piece, I'm not gonna do that. Um, you know, I, look, I think it's very, it, two points. It's, it's dangerous to suggest that, that it's a, I think that, it's dangerous to suggest that just a sort of return to provincialism or it's, it could be the solution, right? Because we have to remember that before the internet, before globalization and global interconnectedness and global awareness, we still had segregation, we still had sexism, we still had homophobia, we still had all the things. We had a lot of things that I think made this country great, but a lot of things I think that we had to work on and that that provincialism, that, that especially given the historical way in which our neighborhoods have been shaped, led to uh, a lot of myopia. So I'd say that. And also, by the way, that is the great potential of the internet and the age we're living in, is mm -hmm. that you, in theory, can be more aware of how we're all connected and similar and, and see and that cat in, videos. in extreme, and cat videos too, which I love. So let's not complain about the cat videos, all right? Now, what I will say is, is and this is where I do feel like, look, I have a bent on this and I, I'm clear yeah. on it, which is, yeah. I want everyone to be nicer. I want everyone to hate less. And I think progressives should lead the way. Because some, <laughs> somebody, well, somebody has to go first. And, and I also feel like, look, to the points that we're making here, uh, if there is a side that, in, that says, that professes um, that people can change and grow, and in fact, that is a core of progressive politics, is that please don't stay where we've been as a country in the divisiveness of racial segregation and slavery and the subjugation of women and the you know, yawning Inequality, economic inequality. We are not, we don't have to stay there. Please don't stay there. And please don't cling to that idea as though it is inevitable or good. Let's progress. That is the idea uh -huh. of progression. That, that demands, it invites change in the country and in individuals. And so if, you, if, if your vision involves people changing and growing, uh -huh. then you have to be able to literally practice what you preach and create space for people to change and grow. Can, can I ask, when you say this, because I've said something similar on the right that you know, we, we've, got to, we've got to improve, we can't improve the other side, we've got to improve our side, and I get a lot these days, well, that's unilateral disarmament. We, we can't be nicer because the other side's gonna, there's mm -hmm. just this, mm -hmm. it absolutely is this 
lack of faith to believe the other side is capable of growing. Yeah, I, um, I get it too. Um, I still have friends and you know, activists and organizers who feel like hate and, and divisiveness is one of the strongest tools in their toolbox. Um, I think it's a problem when we're talking about, you know, look, our core goal here is to make the country better and to make the world better. Mm-hmm. And uh, even the concept of disarmament begs the notion of armament, which right. suggests that we should be armed in this, yes. right? And I just don't, I don't, I don't, I, 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 I'm also a core pacifist, so it's very easy for me <laughs> to move in the direction of saying, no, we shouldn't be arming ourselves. Um, you know, look, I just, I always return to um, one of my favorite quotes, a Martin Luther King quote, and he says, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Yeah. Hate mm-hmm. is not hate. the answer to hate. And he right. said hate is too great a burden to bear. Correct. Yeah. And, and you can't hate your way out of hate. Yeah. Um, and nobody wants to, who wants to come to your side? What concern, this is the other thing, like what Trump supporter is out there saying, well, you know, those progressives called me a gun-toting racist. I'm really thinking I'm gonna sign up with them. That sounds good. Well, right. Like, I'm, right. I'm, come on yeah. over. Yeah. Well, see, this is so. Yeah. So before we open to questions, I mean, you know, also I, I want to say liberals, and I love that definition of progressive, but I don't think progressives have, you know, a corner on the market of believing in human growth and change, right? And and you are a, 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 a devout evangelical Christian, and conversion is an important mm-hmm. value and belief in Christianity. Um, you write about um, your Aunt Lucy. Mm. And, you know, some, and I, you know, what's interesting to me is like, I feel like everyone in our society right now has the story of their loved one who's on the other side. I thought you were about to say we all have an Aunt Lucy, because I've got an Aunt Lucy too. Okay, well, yes. maybe we all have an Aunt <laughs> But we all, or it's often the brother in law. It's often I get a lot of, a lot of brothers in law. questions, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but, for some reason, like, let's say another way to paraphrase repairing public discourse is we want to grow up as a society. Mm. We want to be worthy of the moment we inhabit and meet it with our best. And we, have, we possess a lot of intelligence in our lives, in our families about, you know, for example, that that, you know, nothing gets any better if people don't acknowledge mistakes they made. Mm-hmm. And we don't embrace that and encourage them to grow. And that you never, ever change anybody's mind by telling them how stupid they are. Ever. Never. Ever in history has that <laughs> happened. Um, uh, so, I don't know. I just, I just throw that out there. Well, yeah. I, I, I want to say, to me, the opposite of hate isn't love. It's connection. It's that you have to see. You don't have to. You don't have to love people to not hate them. You have to see that you have something at your core, a fundamental humanity, a fundamental goodness, that transcends the division. And the reason I talk about my aunt Lucy is, uh, you know, and the reason I talk about Scotty Nell Hughes, and the reason I'm so glad we finally got to meet Eric. That I'll talk about Eric now is <laughs> that, you know, there are people who, when you meet them, when you know them, when I talk to my trolls, you realize that the, we're at a point in our society, in our history, where we focus on a very small sliver of our beliefs to fight over. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but when I see my relatives who I don't agree with on 100% of, first of all, I have a whole bunch of relatives I don't agree with on 100% of political issues, but I don't see them as 
they're still on my side because we, I don't know, what do we agree on? You know, 90% of the political issues? Are, where's that dividing line? But the point is, when I see my Aunt Lucy, all right, maybe we disagree on even more. I still love her. Yeah. I still care about her. I still know she's a good person and wants what's best mm-hmm. for me and my family and the country and the world. And that is a really good place to be able to start mm-hmm. to then talk about mm-hmm. what we disagree on. You know, when I started at CNN at the end of 2009, I grew up watching CNN being in Dubai. I mean, it was the news channel you watched. Um, and came home, joined CNN, and suddenly surrounded by people who, as a kid growing up, interested in politics, they were the enemy. I mean, James Carville and Paul Begala, they got that Clinton guy elected. Uh, Donna Brazil, turns out they wound up being my best friends at CNN, still great friends with all of them. Uh, and being able to make those connections. I, a, a friend of mine who disagrees greatly with you on many things, uh, found out I was coming out here and he sent me a text. He says, you don't need to go out there because you'll come back and you'll like her. <laughs> he knows me so well. Um, known it, to it, happen. It, yeah, it really is amazing that it, when you actually meet someone uh, and, and you learn about someone and, and you learn their interests, um, you connect with them on a way you, you, you don't on over the internet. I mean, it's one of the crazy things about the internet. It, it, text messaging as well is, is tone does not come across on the internet uh, unless you yeah. add an emoji these days. Yeah. And even then you can misconstrue the emoji. Yeah. Um, yeah, how does this come across? A sarcasm font. Yes, You know what I mean? Do. I yes. really need a sarcasm I think it's called font. Comic Sans. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I tell people all the time that the reason I'm a conservative is because I believe we're all sinners and I want as few in charge of me as possible. And then I, I also say that, you know, that, that's exactly why I'm, I mean, that's why I like small government. Uh, the fewer sinners in charge of me, I mean, I've got enough sins of my own. I wrote about them in the book. Um, but a lot of evangelicals in current American politics have gotten so wrapped up in their belief in an existential crisis, a, an assault of their culture, an assault of their religion. They've forgotten the concept of grace. And I think all of us, uh, whether or not you are an evangelical Christian, whether or not you're a Christian, most faith cultures, most spiritual cultures have a concept of grace. And I think we lose that over the internet as we interact Mm. more and more with people who are faceless. Okay, I you know I have way I knew this before I came way too many notes. Sally's we're actually on. never getting home because yeah, of the storm. Yeah, there's a big so storm, storm so I'm good. Well, who, who can stay for a few hours? That's good. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do let's just open it up to the room for 15 minutes and come back to here. Um, somebody is going to moderate questions. Hi there. So I have a a few here, and I'll just pick out a couple. Uh, We don't have a ton of time, so let me see. Um, Here's a question. How can young people carry the message of repairing civil discourse to our peers and elders, and how can we gain credibility? Hmm. Um, You know, I spend a lot of time going to colleges and high schools and 
addressing this question, and, and first of all, I think, um, look, for lack of a less delicate way of putting it, it was our generation that uh, started this mess, and it, it's, it's going to have to be somebody else who cleans it up. Um, and I blame that my parents. I think we, first, I think, <laughs> of course you do. I think we. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, think, I think we, um, you know, I think that this generation that's rising isn't given enough credit for the fact that they're the ones who are growing up with, with this new technology, but with a, not sort of suddenly inundated and flooded by it, but with the ability to hopefully step back and reflect and see its potential or its peril and how it can be used differently. So whether that means coming up with new norms uh, you know, for how we share information and uh, you know, what's validated and not and whatever in terms of news sources, that's a huge question, but also just setting different standards and expectations for kindness online and offline. The whole uh, movement in schools to be an upstander to bullying for instance, and yeah. the translated yeah. version of that online. Which actually I take hope from that. has been sparked by seeing our dark side on that big canvas and reckoning with it. I mean, bullying has been the heart of Western civilization forever, and it's yes. the Internet that made us grapple with it. Yes. You Did know, you want to... I, yeah. Yes, I think one of my... The, I, I have left Twitter, maybe temporarily, maybe permanently. I've just decided it's, it's bad for my sanctification. It's not edifying. Um, but one of my favorite tweets I ever saw was somebody put up that Fox News and CNN have done to our parents what they always told us video games would do to us. <laughs> and yes. Uh, yeah, you know, I would say if you're young, there's time for you to acquire good friends who disagree with you politically. Um, because I have found some of my best friends and most meaningful relationships or with people I disagree on politically because you talk about things you have in common. Uh, and when you talk about things you have in common and not politics, suddenly politics becomes ancillary and we could all use with realizing politics isn't the be all end all of everything. Right. right. Mm. This person writes, in many discussions and presentations, keywords such as conservative, liberal, progressive values, beliefs, et cetera, are used but never really defined. Mm. And they have different meanings to many people. Do you find this to be a hindrance to meaningful discussions? Yeah, I, I do more and more because everybody does define them differently. Um, we have lost, I think, so much of our presuppositional shared idiomatic expressions in the country. Um, it, it now has become very regional. There, Camille Poglius, a number of years ago, wrote a, a piece that she always shows a, a painting to her first-year art students of an old bearded man holding up a staff and water separating into towers on either side, uh, Moses parting the Red Sea. She said every year, fewer and fewer of her students recognize what that painting is. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there's something to be said for us allowing people to define themselves now instead of relating to generalities because there are so many different people with different ideas. Mm -hmm. Personally, I look forward to when we can just speak in you know groans and uggs um, and emojis, <laughs> like when we figure out you know, verbal to emoji. I just like that. That would be great. We'll in the let meantime, Siri do it for all of us. In the meantime, I actually think that those concepts are becoming obsolete. And I say this as someone who uses yeah. them rather religiously. Um, 
but before this election, I actually thought we were realigning as a country and actually globally away from conventional left-right politics and toward populism versus elite, um, where I actually think a lot of the Democratic and Republican establishment represent the elite mm -hmm. um, and bases of people on both sides and neither yeah. side have been fed up with the parties and the establishment not working for them. I still think that's generally true. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not but, even talking about right, that. But the question now is what kind of populism, and you're watching mm -hmm. different competing populisms rise around the world. Is it going to be an inclusionary populism or an mm -hmm. exclusionary populism? I mm -hmm. think that's the, mm -hmm. that's the political language mm -hmm. and, and, and sort of wrestling that will define the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. Did you, oh, yeah, no, that's okay. Oh. I, I just want to, just, just on this populism idea, um, I was at a gathering of um, a lot of academics. I was very, I found myself very impatient at this gathering. Um, <laughs> <laughs> here I am at a university, but. Um, she didn't mean you, but it's some, okay. No, I didn't. And, <laughs> And one, of, and one of these academics said something really fascinating that uh, he said, you know, of course, populism is not a new phenomenon. I mean, it, it's all through human history. And, and we almost could, should have predicted that, uh, what, that we might have populism at this point. But he said, interestingly, what tends to rise up when you have populist moments is anti-populism which is not the same as an alternative to populism, right? Mm -hmm. As people creating, like being responsive to the human dynamics that give rise to populism and creating a different world mm. uh, where that does not feel like a survival mechanism. Mm. Anyway. Here's a question and a very particular, kind of looking for practical answers to questions. Uh, particularly hopeful about this localism that Eric talked about. And this person wonders if any of you have any practical tips for navigating political minefields such as the PTA or the co-op or the block party. Okay, that's where life happens. That's a great question. Yeah. You, you know, yes. I, I will say that I, I have commented more than once in the last few months that uh, I, I may give up politics for the pulpit at some point and all of my friends I've said this to have stared incredulously at me and said, you're giving up politics for a church? <laughs> right. uh, where real politics has. I was a city councilman um, elected, and it's worse than national politics. Local politics is far dirtier. Um, people get mad at you in the grocery store because their, their garbage wasn't collected. Um, the thing, though, I would tell you is to go full circle to where this night began. Uh, to the, the Mansfield-Biden story is just yeah. don't impute motives to someone when you don't really know their motives. Um, a lot of people believe a lot of things. Some people believe things that are mutually contradictory. I think we all do. I know I do. Um, but don't impute motives to the person. You, you haven't walked in their shoes. You don't know their background. And we could all do a better job, particularly at the local level in a PTA or, or whatnot. It, it may not be that they just want a, a way to get their kid ahead over your kid. They may have real, real reasons for wanting to do these things. Just getting out of imputing motives would go a long way to helping things. Mm. Um, 
I'll give a practical tip and a challenge. So the practical tip is we, we know from neuroscience that when people uh, sense an argument, their brain shuts down, the persuasion parts of their brain shut down, and the fight or flight parts of their brain light up, and they pick a side. And no one's gonna pick your side, it's by definition an argument, so the other person you're arguing with is gonna pick their side, and, and then the whole thing breaks down, and everybody leaves feeling pretty crummy about things. And so the extent to which we can keep things conversational, and by the way, that's not always just with your diametrically opposed political viewpoints. I, Listen, uh, sort of late in the game, I, elect, I endorsed Bernie Sanders, and I experienced quite a lot of these uh, tense conversations, potential arguments, uh, even in my you know, leafy liberal bubble. So remembering to keep things conversational and trying to both, and also that if you want to persuade someone else, you have to be open to being persuaded yourself. You, you, it, it, is, it, is, it is a conversations, persuasion, these are two-way streets. They have to be, and not like you're faking it, really, authentically, meaningfully, hearing what someone else is saying. Um, what, you all knew, I all knew, you're like, okay, I can pretend to do that. I meant really, <laughs> like, really, really do it. And then the other is, look, we have to do something about um, the way in which our lives and our communities are segregated, and that is increasingly ideological. Uh, it's also racial, economic, um, and you know, it's a very interesting thing about the gay thing, right? Like you could have these stealth gay people, I was one, where I was like dormant in my family that whole time, and then suddenly, surprise, I'm gay, and they already liked me, so it sort of worked out well, and that's why we've had <laughs> such quick progress on gay rights as a country, that doesn't usually happen, say, with like black people or Muslims. Right, right. You know, like your cousin doesn't just suddenly one day come out as Mexican. <laughs> <African> so, <laughs> <laughs> but there are studies that, you know, look, kids who go to racially integrated elementary schools ha grow up to actually, they have less racial bias. And college students who participate in racially integrated uh, activities and after-school programs are uh, actually reduce their racial bias. So there's something about us knowing each other, being together, relating mm -hmm. to each other, that then has a much more positive effect more broadly. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe one more question. Okay. Uh, this person talks about uh, a word that hasn't been used so much tonight and feels an important word missing from the conversation thus far is courage. Mm. and be interested to hear what both speakers think of the word in the context of this discussion. Mm. I'm against it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to throw y'all a curveball. Um, you know, this is interesting. Uh, wow. Uh, you know, to be honest, I mean, unlike everything else I've said, which was a pack of lies, just <laughs> the whole time. When I think of courage right now, I think of it as an intensely vulnerable personal thing. Mm -hmm. It's the willingness to be wrong. And, you know, I'm supposed to have opinions for a living. Uh, in an era where we are all supposed to be correct all the time, and 
I, and when someone calls you out in the media, on air, in your social circles, your, the, the instinct, both I think on a human level, but fed by the nature of our confrontational culture and modeled by our political leaders is to dig in your heels and not to stop and think and reflect and say maybe I was wrong, maybe I have been wrong, maybe I didn't handle that well, maybe, I, maybe my position on that is too staunch or unyielding or, and, and even just to entertain the possibility to me right now in this moment is courageous. I, I guess that's how I, mm. I think of courage in this mm. moment. Mm. You know, so many words I think have been cheapened in the last number of years. And I think courage is one of the words that has been cheapened. Uh, a lot of it's, it's courageous for person X to take this stand that 90% of the people agree with. Um, it's, it's courageous for this person to not like that person that everybody else hates. Um, I, 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 it's been cheapened so much, and I really think it's something that must be modeled uh, and not spoken. And during 2016, a lot of people told me that I was courageous for doing what I was doing, standing up to Donald Trump. I probably wiped out my radio career, people thought. Uh, everything was going to tank. I uh, got taken off Fox, uh, rarely was on Fox after that. Um, but under contract, so I couldn't go anywhere else. I just did what I thought was right. And if more people did what they thought was right, um, you know, a lot of people think they're doing what's right and it's not. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if you just, if you're willing to stand up for your principles, but also understand that everybody else should stand up for their principles as well, we're not all going to agree mm -hmm. uh, and just let people be. I think the real courage in America today is just letting the other person disagree with you mm -hmm. um, without getting in their face and demanding that they conform. Uh, there's too much conformity on both sides. Mm -hmm. I, I actually, I, that actually leads me to one of the questions I want to ask as we, um, as we wind down, which is um, if, if the goal <clears throat> of, of a robust civility um, is not that we agree, right? And that, in fact, uh, we really do have some deep, deep differences where there's not even going to be a lot of common ground in the room. But I think an, a, 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 an assumption we're making here, or a, a proposition, is that we, we're not going to let common ground, easy common ground, be a prerequisite for common life. Like, we are going to insist on creating something called common life. <clears throat> but if it is about also just learning to disagree better mm -hmm. with more integrity, more personal integrity, not hating, um, what, what difference does it make? And like the two of you have been, and you're both really good at saying, you know, I'm not perfect at this. You know, Sally, you've said, I haven't learned to stop hating yet. And and, and, and Eric, you said... Oh, I said, have lots. Yeah, you said... Some of them not repeatable. In your book, you know, you said the need for relationship and community is why it pains me to have to acknowledge what a jerk I have been and can still be on social media. So, so this is a work in progress for any of us. We are all sinners. Um, what is the experience you have of what does shift? What shifts? What becomes possible? What difference does it make? I, um, 
have had the experience myself of being unexpectedly kind in the face of people being cruel, online or off, and seeing the difference it makes. In yourself. In my, first and of all, in I them? feel better. Mm-hmm. I feel better when I'm not a jerk. I just do. Um, try it. <laughs> um, but in, in them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, people write back and say, hey, you're, you're all right. You know, um, your friend warning you that you might <laughs> like me. Uh, and I had the privilege of finding example after example. I mean, look, just to go back, not to pick on Twitter too much, but it just does happen to be the sort of endemic cesspool of what we're talking about. Again, I don't want to pick on Twitter. But there are incredibly powerful stories of people who, you know, um, were, you know, professional hate mongers or kids who were just saying nasty, violent, racist things, and who the targets of that hate showed kindness, generosity, and transformed those dynamics Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. Twitter. Mm -hmm. People who left entire hate movements Mm -hmm. because the people who they had been raised thinking were hateful, showed mm-hmm. them kindness. And I have to say, I'm aware of the, par- of the burden that, in a way, this suggests, is that those who are perhaps, if you believe it's not even, <coughs> those who perhaps are at the receiving end of more of the hate should have to shoulder the burden of taking the high road. I, I get that. There are times where it feels deeply yeah. unjust and, to me. And in some cases, it's too much to ask. And but in some, some cases, cases are strong it is too enough much to, to ask. ask it of. Yeah. On the other hand, this is where those of us who are yeah. more privileged can, in fact, step up. Yeah. And also, I want to say, I, I look, I believe in the high road. I believe in the equal and full beauty and potential of all people. I believe in treating people like they are all extraordinary and beautiful and equal. And I say that in my politics, and therefore I want to live that in my life, Mm -hmm. in every example. And that Mm -hmm. includes in the moments where it's hardest. Mm -hmm. And so I do feel like that that is the... walking the talk, that is the making the road by walking it, that is it, mm-hmm. that is the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I am blown away by the, exam- by the difference it makes. Mm. You know, I'm always struck, um, if just riddle to some degree, uh, what is the first bad in scripture? What is the very first bad thing that happens in Genesis? It's not Cain and Abel, and it's not the fall, the serpent, and the apple. It's actually in the Garden of Eden before evil even enters the world. God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's the first bad, loneliness. And so many of us concoct relationships and communities online, and we're still alone. And then we get in our tribes, uh, Republican, conservative, liberal, progressive, Democrat, well, that tribe then becomes alone, insulated. We don't mix and mingle with the other. 
And when you don't mix and mingle with the other, it's a lot easier to believe the other is the enemy. And I really push myself more and more to, to make sure I'm actually having physical interaction with other people. And, you know, with, with the wife who has cancer, and I know we're, we're running out of good years, um, and being in middle Georgia where most of my friends are online uh, and not there, uh, I'm more and more mindful of the fact that it really is necessary for people to have actual real friends. And I, I don't think there's a coincidence at all relatedly that we both began having these internal conversations um, with having kids. Um, that level of local, and I don't mean to keep harping on local here, that's not intentional, just community. Mm -hmm. Physical, real, break bread community. In, in my book, I am a firm believer that everyone should learn to cook because you should open your home and bring people in who you want to be your friend that you don't know. Um, there's, a, there's a great Christian author, Rosaria Butterfield, who was a, a lesbian scholar at Syracuse, and she writes to the Christian community a lot that you, there is no better community in America than the gay community, where an unlocked door and a warm meal could be the difference between drugs, depression, suicide, and that if we want real community, it needs to be radical community. We need to recognize that our blessings are blessings to be shared with other preach, people. Preach, Erickson, yeah. preach! So, <laughs> the gay gospel uh, coming yeah. from Eric Erickson. Uh, yeah, I never thought I'd see the day, but like you said, I believe in change, hallelujah! <laughs> Praise Jesus. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, let, let me just say, it is, we undervalue in the 21st century real community and real meal. And if we get back to that, I think lots of the world's problems can be solved around a dinner table with a warm meal with strangers getting to know them. <laughs> okay, we could finish one minute early, which would please something deep in my radio bones, but I'd really like to keep, can we just keep going for five more minutes? Sure. Is that all right? <laughs> Like, I've got nowhere okay. to be. Okay. Um, and I don't know if this is uh, something I just want to bring up with the two of you and in this room. Something that's very much on my mind is I'm so happy we haven't talked about the White House tonight, right? Just oh. because we're so fixated, God right? From whom Thank all you. Blessings flow. Yes, no, really, because there's more to life and there's more to politics and there's more to us than politics. And um, something that puzzles me, and I'm curious about the two of you. Because you, but because you are in that world of um, anyway, um, you are in that world. Is that on so many of these things on which we're so divided and which a lot of hate gets thrown around by the extremes, which we allow to define and frame all of our important discussions? There's this middle ground, this vast middle ground where people aren't the same. But you know, for example, I mean, you know. A couple of examples. I mean, like on the on the DACA stuff, on the Dreamers, right? Recently, mm -hmm. we focused on the fight, right? And we've done the fight, and we've done it, and we know what its dimensions are, and and we know that there's a stranglehold in Congress for all kinds of other reasons. But like seventy for seventy five percent of Americans wanted something to happen, right? There was a lot of diversity when that within that group, but it actually was a moment where we were together on something across these lines. 
And there's also, for a long time it's been true that on abortion, you know, something like 60 to 65 percent of Americans across party lines favor, you know, abortion with limits. Now, there's a big conversation to have about what those limits are. But rather than always having the same fight about it's always right or it's always wrong, why can't we start our conversations in the at the, you know, where we are all ready to have a fruitful conversation. Um, I just wonder if you have thoughts about that, about not just like we could talk about why it doesn't happen, but could we start? Could we start talking about the things we all want to be talking about where we're actually ready to begin? Like, how would that begin? Oh, I'm so cynical on this issue, I'd probably depress you all. Uh, it, you know, I, I, I don't know that the center exists in the way all of us here think of it these days because American political parties have so deeply psychographically analyzed people uh, to be able to figure out the hot button issue that pushes them. Right. Um, moderate, self-described moderates in this country tend to vote more liberal. Self-described independents in this country tend to vote more Republican. There's actually a smaller and smaller pool of moderates and independents in this country, uh, just at a political level. Uh, and the people who get the most energized and write the biggest checks and turn out the most regularly are the people on the extremes, and so politicians cater to them. Um, I am of the belief, and again, it goes back to being a conservative because I want as few sinners in charge of me as possible, is I think that the solutions that will move the country forward, by and large, tend to be at the state level. Mm -hmm. And I get a lot of hate from my conservative friends for saying, you know, if I want a state where I can put restrictions on abortion and a, a Christian can run a business and doesn't have to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, mm -hmm. I need to allow there to be a state that allows unrestricted abortion and sanctuary cities and tells a Christian, bake the cake. Uh, that if we aren't willing to respect those, that diversity under federalism, if it's all one size fits all, mm. then it's one size fits all at the extremes of both parties fighting over power. Uh, and I just, I think if we're a more diffuse country, um, things turn out better in the long run for all of us. We've got to be able to agree to disagree, but mm. everyone's clamoring for power and we're so psychographically targeted by the political parties, whether you take the Cambridge Analytica story on Facebook or whatnot, mm -hmm. they've gotten really good at finding out what pushes us. Yeah, I guess the question is, how do we liberate ourselves from them? Right? Like, where's this yeah. social courage? And, and I, I mean, bomb the internet servers. So, no. I mean, it's like it's. I don't yeah, know. So yeah. <laughs> so, I, here's where I am biased, and I will disagree. Which is, I, I actually think we we are a fun, whatever word we want to use, we are a fundamentally progressive country on issue after issue after issue, immigration reform, uh, abortion rights. Uh, you know, look, 86% of gun mm -hmm. owners mm -hmm. want common sense gun reform. So what I think is true is that the parties have become captured by, mm -hmm. by and large, corporate elites, and that those, and as well as special interests, and that our media 
has right. it's, been infused with a sort of reality show cage match-esque yeah. has dynamic made it worse. that, that, that yeah. forces the extremes. Right. As Because what, what fun would it be to watch people agree right. about right. fundamentally <laughs> important things in our country? Now, just not to say that I believe in centrism, yeah. right? But that you're right. It, yeah. Those two things can coexist. I will say this. Um, in 1969, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire in Ohio because companies had been dumping toxic sludge into it, and so suddenly the river caught on fire, and the people said, we can't have this, you can't have a river on fire, and the people demanded something be done, and demanded that the government do something, and demanded that corporations behave differently, and that's how we got Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act, and we, and we, we forced change because we, the people, said, mm -hmm. that's not okay. It's not okay for the river to catch on fire. The fire that is now brewing in our democracy, the extreme animosity and antagonism that is preventing the actual work mm -hmm. of our democracy from getting done, our, our, our civility, our humanity, our democracy is burning mm -hmm. because of the political ruling elites and because of media and the incentives that media puts on discord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, the people, have to see that fire and say, that's not normal, that's not okay. And the politicians and the media have to stop dumping toxic sludge into our democracy. Right, right. And we have to demand it. Right. We could keep going another, so we have to finish. Um, uh, Eric, something you've been really articulate, I feel, about is, uh, just saying that you're, you know, that you're going to be really clear about what you think is wrong, and yet you also don't want to be so focused. You don't want to be completely focused on what you think is wrong. You also, right? And I feel like we've been circling around this all the time. There's, I, and I feel that this is an, an epidemic culture that we're so focused, and it's driven by all this and what's coming at us. We're, we're very fixated on what we hate. Mm -hmm. Really clear about that. And, but so focused on it that it starts to define us and I think deform us. Um, uh, and I, and are you, again, you in, in the book, you say, you know, I'm going to also be really clear about what I love. And I, you know, I, I feel like this is, this is a, a form of resistance to that, is also being clear about what we love. So I'm just curious about, and I feel like the two of you, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm saying it exactly the way you would say it, but I think you know what I mean. Like, what is it that you want to be? I think it's sometimes King, you know, you know, you, you see the darkness, you grapple with the darkness, but you keep walking towards the light. So how is, uh, how are, what, are, what is it that, what's the light now that's drawing you? What is what you love that is mobilizing you every bit as, as, as what you know needs to be better? Um, other than food, that's, that's kind of a problem. Um, I keep pitching this TV show where I bring politicians in and cook and we don't talk politics. I want to talk to Nancy Pelosi about chocolate because I love chocolate. Uh, so does she. Um, find common ground that way. You know, I, 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 this sounds very trite. I'm from the South, forgive me. I love Jesus. And I do a very bad job of modeling him more often than not and have to conform towards that. Um, I, what I love is knowing that at some point there will be a better life. 
um, particularly given my wife's situation, that gives me hope. Um, and knowing that I want my children to see a glimmer of it now. And what am I doing to give them that glimmer? And I got to be honest with you, I, I was a political consultant for a decade. And I always told candidates that anger ultimately never wins because it, it feeds on itself and eventually burns out. And I, I think we've seen anger winning lately. I still think it'll burn out. I think there's a, a madness burning through the country right now. Uh, and those of us who don't get consumed by it will be left to help pick up the pieces of civilization. Uh, it may take a while, but it'll happen. It always does. And I want to give my kids, my family, myself, and others a glimmer of that betterness that I love. And for me, it, it's reflected in my faith uh, and loving someone as I want them to love me, doing for them as I want them to do to me. Uh, and sometimes it's hard when you have people show up on your doorstep, um, when your wife tells a Bible study she has lung cancer, there's no cure, and they announce that they want to slap me, uh, but they'll pray for her. Um, sometimes it gets very hard. But I just tell my kids all the time, don't be like the kid you don't like in school. Um, be like the person you like. Uh, model that behavior. And we all fail. I mean, we're all sinners. We, we all fall. But yeah, I, I, I love God, so I've got to do better looking like him on the planet. Uh, and I'm going to fail. Bible says I'm going to fail. But it doesn't mean I will always fail. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to, if you end up uh, leaving politics and going to the church, I'm going to come for the sermons. And also the ice cream you said you make. Um, yes, I make great homemade ice cream. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll report back. Uh, I love the transformation. I love that for every horror that's happened in the history of our country or in the world, I love that there are people who somehow manage to transcend it. Um, I had the privilege of going to Rwanda when I was researching my book. Rwanda in 1994, they had the fastest genocide in, in world history. 800,000 uh, Tutsis were slaughtered in 100 days. And now there are villages, communities, where people are living next door. Tutsis are living next door, literally living next door to the Hutus who killed their family members, who killed their loved ones. And, and, and working through how to find a common identity in the face of the way that they were, that their identities were divided in part because of a violent history of colonialism and, 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 and to be able to do that, to be able to find that grace and transformation. The fact that in our young history we have as a country, we have been through some horrible, ugly things. We have treated people brutally, and we still in many ways do. Look at what's happening with the opioid crisis, and with poverty, and with you know, the racial income gap. We still have, and we manage somehow to keep 
doing a little bit better. And we are, I think, better today than we were 50 years ago and then we were 100 years ago and I am, I, I, am, I am so in love and inspired by that possibility in each of us and in, in us collectively as humanity and I try to always remember that even when it feels so incredibly dark and hateful and ugly. Y'all have both mentioned Martin Luther King. Mm. My favorite sermon of his, The Three Dimensions of Life, mm. if you've never read it or heard it, Google it. Um, one of the things he says, and you're probably familiar with the quote, is, is be the best you can be. If you're a shrub, be the best shrub. If you're a tree, be the best tree. If you're a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper so that when heaven looks down, heaven looks at the streets and says, there is the best street sweeper in God's kingdom. And... I think everybody's just got to be the, I, I don't want to channel Joel Osteen here. God help me. Um, <laughs> it, but it, it, you don't need your best life now. You're not going to get your best life now. Um, but you can be the best person uh, you can be. Uh, it's a struggle to get there. But ultimately, we all have the ability, Sally's absolutely right, to improve. I think... Um, with some public policies and, you know. With some, okay, okay, don't muddy thing. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think one of the things I've felt about um, this incredible young century that we inhabit and all of our technology and our, you know, our globalization, all of our advance, it, it feels like on some level the complexity that we've achieved has brought us right back to ourselves, right? Like we are back at the human condition and having to grapple with that. And politics and economics are now just a thin veneer over the human drama of fear and pain and hope. And it feels to me like we started out to talk about politics and public discourse and where we've come back is actually this really wonderful, liberating place that it actually is about our, us as much as it's about all of that. So um, I wanna so much, uh, th again, thank the Mansfield Center and the University of Montana and Montana just for being so amazing. And Sally Cohn and Eric Erickson, thank you for this a wonderful discussion. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you.